Good morning, Bethel. So, the UK news source, The Guardian, um, several years ago, ran this story. David Irving, the discredited British historian and Nazi apologist, was, and this is back in the mid-2000s, starting a three-year prison sentence in Vienna for denying the Holocaust in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Irving, who appeared in court confidently carrying his book, Hitler's War, he, quote, he said, my flagship, 35 years of work, immediately vowed to appeal against the sentence. I'm very shocked, he said, as he was led back to the cells where he had been held for the past three months. He was 67 at the time. He started the day affecting the image of an English gentleman arraigned before a foreign court. Frankly, he said, questions about the Holocaust bore me. He called the trial ridiculous and claimed that the Austrian law under which he was being tried would be scrapped within a year. In two 1989 speeches, he termed the Auschwitz gas chambers a fairy tale and insisted that Adolf Hitler had protected the Jews of Europe. He referred to surviving death camp witnesses as psychiatric cases and asserted that there were no extermination camps in the Third Reich. This court appearance is the latest in a long line of legal battles in which this far-right historian has been involved, stretching back 40 years. He has always portrayed himself as a victim of smear tactics who is seeking to bring to light historical truths. So how do you feel about that? Anyone feeling any moral revulsion? What if that guy was your neighbor and he tried to sell some of those lies to your kids in the backyard? What would you do? What would you say? If he tried to convince your, let's say you work at the same place and he, he's, you know, spinning this propaganda among your friends and coworkers, would you do anything? Would you say anything? So tomorrow, <clears throat> as Rachel mentioned, is the 45th anniversary since the landmark Supreme Court case, Roe versus Wade, that legalized abortion in all 50 states. So since then, it's been legal for any woman at any time, for any reason, to have an abortion. So since then, we're talking about 60 million abortions in these 45 years, somewhere north of that. To put that in context, there are about 320 million people living in the entire United States right now. In 2014, I couldn't find any more recent data. Um, 2014, there were some 3,000 abortions performed in our little state of Delaware. Um, that's about the daily average for the United States, 3,000. But for our little state, that's about eight babies per day. And this is going to happen this week. It's going to happen at the Planned Parenthood Clinic on Shipley Street in Wilmington. It's going to happen at the Newark Planned Parenthood near UD. It's going to happen at Premier Obigaini in Wilmington. How do you feel about that? 
this is a holocaust. So we dare not deny it. I don't think any of us would deny it, but we can't pretend like it's not happening, like it hasn't happened, like it isn't continuing to happen. But we all wrestle with, what do we do about it? So for some help on that, let's turn to Luke 10, and we're going to look at well-known story, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. So that's found on page 868, if you are, I'm sorry, 869, if you're using a pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one in the pew right in front of you and follow along as I read, and maybe it would be good, everyone's been sitting for a little while, to stand while I read. We also typically do that just in honor of God's Word. Um, So why don't you stand with me, and I will read Luke 10, verses 25 to 37, pray again briefly, and then we'll, we'll dive in. This is God's Word, and this is specifically the words of our Lord Jesus here. And behold, a lawyer, which would be like a law expert, expert in the Torah, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. Father, uh, it's sobering and uh, heavy to consider the reality of abortion and uh, the scope of what has taken place over the last 45 years in the United States 
the scope of what's taken place in this world It's just hard to even begin to get our minds and hearts around it. We also feel really pretty helpless, and uh, we think about our busy lives and what in the world can we do to help. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come now by your Spirit and that you would make us attentive to you, to what you have to say to us this morning. You know where each one of us is at, what we're wrestling with, thinking through um, everybody's history. And so, Lord, I pray that those sobering, um, as we consider the reality of abortion and what it really means and what you call us to, to do as your followers... I pray that at the core of who we are, we would first hear what you have done for us so that any sobering responsibility, call to compassion and mercy and sacrificial love would be pulled by the mighty, locomotive engine of your grace toward us in Christ, the way that you have loved us in our needy, vulnerable, sinful weakness, helplessness. So cause us to thrill over how you have loved us and may our neighbor love well up and overflow as a response. So please help us to become the kind of neighbors that you want us to be and do it by showing us how you have lovingly neighbored us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so who is my neighbor? So after... Jesus answers this guy's question with a question. He says, okay, do this and you'll live. And so in a sense, Jesus kind of calls this guy's bluff. You know, he's really there to test Jesus, um, not to really get the answer to this question because he thinks he already has the answer to this question. So so Jesus says, "Are, are you actually living this? Are you doing this? And so then he starts to get a little bit insecure and nervous. And he's got to justify himself. And so desiring, verse 29, to justify himself, he says to Jesus, "And who is my neighbor? But Jesus doesn't answer that question. Did you notice that? I mean, obviously he's asking the questions. But instead, he says, who was a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but who was a neighbor, a loving neighbor. So the real question is, are you living like, am I living like, are we being the kind of neighbors that we're called to be? Love your neighbor as yourself. How can I be a neighbor? So the question wasn't even, you know, is this guy on the ground my neighbor? No, it's which one of the guys walking by was 
the neighbor. We don't have any non-neighbors. Do you know that? So last night, read this passage to our kids. Um, it's typically what we do. You might want to consider doing that if you have kids. Um, get them familiar with what the passage is. They might have some great insights, um, great questions that you can be considering. So read the passage, and when I got to that spot, you know, so who is my neighbor? Ben pipes up and he says, everybody in the world. He's right. Now, practically speaking, we have to qualify that because we cannot. We are limited little human people. We cannot love everybody on the planet. Okay? We're not even intended to. But everybody on the planet that comes into your path is your neighbor. So that's the issue. Whoever's in my path in need, no matter the risk or the obstacles. So this law expert knows what to do. He's testing Jesus, but he, he knows what to do. But the lawyer isn't doing what he knows, which is why he starts to scramble and feel like he needs to justify himself. That seems kind of relevant with some of the things that the Lord calls us to, right? We know what to do, but are we doing what we know? So when Jesus calls his bluff, he has to justify himself. He betrays who he really is. So we don't want to respond like this law expert trying to justify ourselves, right? And the Samaritan then shows us what neighbor love looks like. So let's look, okay? This is point number two. So first question was, who is my neighbor? It's actually who was the neighbor and then secondly here, compassion and mercy. The Samaritan's going to show us in this parable that Jesus tells. So do you see all the action verbs that show up after this guy comes on the scene? So the priest and the Levite, when they see this guy, they pass by on the other side for whatever reason. Ooh, ceremonial uncleanness. Maybe it's a, a ruse. You know, there's robbers hiding behind the rock. This is ketchup, you know, underneath his head, if they had ketchup back then, or, you know, some Middle Eastern equivalent. And as soon as I, you know, get off my donkey or whatever to help this guy out, they're going to jump on me and beat me and take my wallet. So I'm just going to keep moving. Whatever the reason, they passed by. But this Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, Boom, watch these verbs. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, using his resources to, you know, the wine to disinfect the wounds and get the healing process started. Then he set him on his own animal. So that means he was going to be walking. This guy wasn't well enough to walk on his own. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him there. And the next day, he took out two denarii. so like a day's wages for a kind of a blue-collar worker. So what do you make in a day? Double it. That's pretty costly. Gave those denarii to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay. So he commits to a return trip and paying off the tab, whatever it might be. So, compassion and mercy, this is visible, and Jesus wants us to see it. So, he's taking risks if 
this really was a ruse and there's robbers still around. Or, or maybe if it wasn't a ruse and this guy's really gotten beaten up, but those robbers are waiting for the next guy to slow down and help. He, he may have ripped some of his clothing to bandage the man. He's putting him on his beast, like I said. He didn't just get him to shelter and drop him off. He took care of him there. So there's this holistic care. He wasn't a minimalist. He didn't do some calculation and try to see, you know, try to see what's the minimum amount I can do to get away with and get, I gotta get, get on with my busy life. So priests and Levites see, they didn't see. They were blind, just like this law expert sitting in front of him. So Jesus is asking questions and telling parables, this parable, to open eyes. And so perhaps as we engage in the cause of life, we should learn from Jesus' style of engagement. Stories can help, right, when there's blindness. And there's a lot of blindness in our culture on this stuff, right? So maybe you could use this parable. I'm just going to get, I mean, you could use this one, Luke 10. But you could also maybe use this story, um, this and, and, and probably a couple quotes um, I got from Justin Taylor's excellent message at the Claris Conference a couple years ago in New Mexico. So anyway, have you heard about the Balloon Boy, Colorado, 2009? I didn't know about this story. But there was this story that unfolded in Colorado having to do with this young boy who was trapped in a large helium balloon. So his dad was a meteorologist and like a storm chaser made this big balloon kind of look like a, a flying saucer, like 20 feet across, and helium, and, you know, anyway. So apparently they were testing some things, and there was a little box underneath, and the thing was supposed to be tethered, and it released, and it's flying, you know, even up to like 7,000 feet at one point. And they thought that the little boy, the six-year-old boy, had crawled in this little box, and he's in the box, floating, like untethered, and so there's emergency medical teams that were notified and police squads and planes were rerouted, you know, Denver International Airport. National Guard helicopters were deployed. The boy's name, you ready for this? His name was Falcon, okay? So the balloon starts to lose helium and there was a fear that it's going to crash. People are running trying to break the fall of this balloon and save this boy's life. And when the balloon finally fell, there's no boy in the box. So they think, oh my word, he fell out. There was a deputy even that said that he thought he saw something fall at one point. So there's this huge manhunt for this boy. Well, as it turned out, the boy was at home, just taking a nap. So in a family interview by Wolf Blitzer, Falcon said, just kind of in response to something, I think he was asked, why didn't you come out of the garage or something? Anyway, the boy says, you guys said that um, we did this for the show. So it turns out it was a hoax. His dad had a dream of living a reality TV show. I'm not making this up. He made all this up, okay, in order to kind of raise their marketability. So the cost, I mean, there were some estimates that maybe this is like $2 million that this cost 
you know, whatever entities in Colorado may have been impacted by this. And the couple went from this, you know, you can imagine pitied victims like, oh my word, experiment gone wrong to liars guilty of criminal charges. And actually the dad spent time in jail and mom, anyway. Here's the point. Everything hung on what was in the balloon. Just imagine if that balloon would have released with nothing in it, which, I mean, obviously, and everybody would have known that there was nothing in it. Would it have made the news? Not at all. How much would they have spent on trying to, you know, brace the thing's fall? Nothing. But because there was a a boy, there might be a boy in there, all kinds of human resources were marshaled. So here, isn't this ironic? Our culture has this like deep value that it places on human life. No expense spared, no effort or sacrifice too great, no calculus. Like, well, you know, once we hit the $2 million mark, we're going to pull out of this. Because... So do you see the parallels? Everything hung on what was in that balloon. Everything actually hangs on what is in the womb. If the womb is filled with a mere clump of cells, then okay. But if the womb is filled with a human being, then... And our, our culture is so conflicted. It's so weird. Like, we, we do incredibly expensive surgeries while the child is in the womb to fix spina bifida because... Why? Because it's a person that's worth that. But then, in the name of reproductive health, we say all kinds of other things. So what is in the womb? Well, we could multiply medical scientific evidence. Let me just give you one quote, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who co-founded NARAL. Okay, that's National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Okay, established in 1969. He personally performed over 5,000 abortions, oversaw like 60,000. He was um, like the head guy of the biggest abortion clinic in the country for a while. Um, with the developments of ultrasound technology, the ability to measure fetal brain and heart function, he changed sides and became a passionate advocate for life. The movie The Silent Scream, back in the 70s or something, that was him, or 80s, 80s. So in 1974, which would have been prior to his you know, changing sides. He wrote an article for the New England Journal of Medicine, which he states, there is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists within the womb from the very onset of pregnancy. He reiterated later, there's simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All its genetic coding and all its features are indisputably human. As to being, there is no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, and is not the same being as the mother and is therefore a unified whole. Okay, We, we know that. Do you know that even pro-choice leaders admit this? I, I just, this is amazing to me. So Faye Waddleton was Planned Parenthood's former president. She was one of the ones with the longest tenure. And back in 97, she said, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Naomi Wolf, a prominent feminist author, abortion supporter, she said, clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. 
And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being, callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. We need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of a fetus is a real death. I have a hard time understanding that flow of logic, but she's candidly honest. One more. Camille Paglia. I've always frankly admitted that abortion is murder. The extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace, their, their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. The state, in my view, has no... The state, in my view, has no authority whatever to intervene in the biological processes of any woman's body which nature has implanted there before birth and hence before that woman's entrance into society and citizenship. Do you see the crazy contradiction? Like, nature implanted it before, so it's inviolable. <laughs> Wait a second, but you're violating that little one that early. Craziness. So, and then she says, on the other hand, I support the death penalty for atrocious crime, atrocious, atrocious crime, such as rape murder or the murder of children. I'm not making this up. So tell this to the people who write the copy for Planned Parenthood. Listen to how they write it. What is an abortion? Abortion is a medical procedure that ends a pregnancy. In-clinic abortion procedures are safe and effective. In-clinic abortions are also called surgical abortions. What are the types of in-clinic abortions? In-clinic abortion works by using suction to take a pregnancy out of your uterus. There are a couple of kinds. Suction abortion, also called vacuum aspiration, is the most common type of in-clinic abortion. It uses gentle suction to empty your uterus. Dilation and evacuation is another kind of in-clinic abortion procedure. It uses suction and medical tools to empty your uterus. Why do they shy away? No more euphemisms. This is going to be hard to hear, okay? But this is actually what happens. So there's a lady named Abby Johnson. And in September of 2009, she was working as a director of a Planned Parenthood in Texas. She had been with Planned Parenthood for eight years and a little while as director, I don't know how long, and she was asked to come in to kind of assist on an abortion because they were short-staffed, and here's what happened. As I took the ultrasound probe in hand and adjusted the settings on the machine, I argued with myself. I don't want to be here. I don't want to take part in an abortion. No, wrong attitude. I needed to psych myself up for this task. I took a deep breath and tried to tune in to the music from the radio playing softly in the background. It's a good learning experience. I've never seen an ultrasound-guided abortion before, I told myself. Maybe this will help me when I counsel women. I'll learn firsthand about this safer procedure. Besides, it will be over in just a few minutes. I could not have imagined how the next 10 minutes would shake the foundations of my values and change the course of my life. I was expecting to see what I had seen in past ultrasounds. Usually, depending on how far along the pregnancy was and how the fetus was turned, I'd see a leg or the head or some partial image of the torso and would need to maneuver a bit to get the best possible image. But this time, the image was complete. I could see the entire perfect profile of a baby, just like Grace at 12 weeks, I thought. 
surprised, remembering my first peek at my daughter three years before, snuggled securely inside my womb. The image now before me looked the same, only clearer, sharper. The detail startled me. I could clearly see the profile of the head, both arms, legs, and even tiny fingers and toes, perfect. And just that quickly, the flutter of the warm memory of grace was replaced with the surge of anxiety. What am I about to see? My stomach tightened. I don't want to watch what is about to happen. Thirteen weeks, I heard the nurse say after taking measurements to determine the fetus's age. Okay, the doctor said, looking at me. Just hold the probe in place during the procedure so I can see what I'm doing. The cool air of the exam room left me feeling chilled. My eyes still glued to the image of this perfectly formed baby. I watched as a new image entered the video screen, the cannula. A straw-shaped instrument attached to the end of the suction tube had been inserted into the uterus and was nearing the baby's side. It was looking like an invader on the screen, out of place, wrong. It just looked wrong. My heart sped up. Time slowed. I didn't want to look, but I didn't want to stop looking either. I couldn't not watch. I was horrified but fascinated at the same time like a gawker slow, slowing as he drives past some horrific automobile wreck, not wanting to see a mangled body but looking all the same. My eyes flew to the patient's face. Tears flowed from the corners of her eyes. I could see she was in pain. The nurse dabbed the woman's face with a tissue. Just breathe, the nurse gently coached her. Breathe. It's almost over, I whispered. I wanted to stay focused on her, but my eyes shot back to the image on the screen. At first, the baby didn't seem aware of the cannula. It gently probed the baby's side, and for a quick second, I felt relief. Of course, I thought, the fetus doesn't feel pain. I had reassured countless women of this, as I'd been taught by Planned Parenthood. The fetal tissue feels nothing as it's removed. Get a grip, Abby. This is a simple, quick medical procedure. My head was working hard to control my responses, but I couldn't shake an inner disquiet that was quickly mounting to horror as I watched the screen. The next movement was the sudden jerk of a tiny foot as the baby started kicking, as if trying to move away from the probing invader. As the cannula pressed in, the baby began struggling to turn and twist away. It seemed clear to me that the fetus could feel the cannula and did not like the feeling. And then the doctor's voice broke through, startling me. Beam me up, Scotty, he said lightheartedly to the nurse. He was telling her to turn on the suction. In an abortion, the suction isn't turned on until the doctor feels he has the cannula in exactly the right place. I had a sudden urge to yell, stop, to shake the woman and say, look at what is happening to your baby. Wake up. Hurry, stop them. But even as I thought those words, I looked at my own hand holding the probe. I was one of them performing this act. My eyes shot back to the screen again. The cannula was already being rotated by the doctor, and now I could see the tiny body violently twisting with it. For the briefest moment, it looked as if the baby were being wrung like a dishcloth, twirled and squeezed, and then the little body crumpled and began disappearing into the cannula before my eyes. The last thing I saw was the tiny, perfectly formed backbone sucked into the tube, and then everything was gone, and the uterus was empty, totally empty. I was frozen in disbelief. Without realizing it, I let go of the probe. It slipped off the patient's tummy and slid onto her leg. I could feel my heart pounding, pounding so hard my neck throbbed. I tried to get a deep breath but couldn't seem to breathe in or out. I still stared at the screen even though it was black now because I'd lost the image, but nothing was registering to me. I felt too stunned and shaken to move. I was aware of the doctor and nurse casually chatting as they worked, but it sounded distant, like vague background noise, hard to hear over the pounding of my own blood in my ears. The image of the tiny body mangled and sucked away was replaying in my mind and with it the image of Grace's first ultrasound. 
how she'd been about the same size, and I could hear in my memory one of my many arguments I'd had with my husband about abortion because they had disagreed. My, avil, my eyes tra- traveled back to my hands. I looked at them as if they weren't even my own. How much damage have these hands done over the past eight years? How many lives have been taken because of them? Not just because of my hands, but because of my words. What if I'd known the truth, and what if I'd told all these women? So Abby left Planned Parenthood, and she sought help from a local pro-life group, and she began advocating for life. Planned Parenthood took action to silence her with a gag order and took her to court. Thankfully, they lost. It was thrown out of court. And she's been (laughs) at work since, and there's a ministry called And Then There Were None, a ministry designed to assist abortion clinic workers out of the industry. And to date, which I'm not sure the date of this article, it's helped over 300 workers leave the abortion industry. So Rachel prayed for abortion doctors and workers in this state. Do you think we ought to do that? (laughs) I think we ought to do that. We can't say we didn't know. Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not, and will he not repay man according to his work? So we dare not be like Holocaust deniers. But instead, we must go and do likewise. But let's make sure we go and do likewise not as some sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is not a moral pep talk. This is a Christian sermon. (laughs) And the power for this, which Rachel stated so clearly, is the power of the gospel. Jesus died for all of our wretchedness to make murderers into beloved sons and daughters. We all killed Jesus. So it's all of us. So his compassion and mercy, his beautiful, wonderful compassion and mercy, think about all the action verbs that represent the love of God in Christ toward us, how he neighbored us. That's the power to start stepping out to go and do likewise. We can love because he first loved us. The more that you know and are thrilled with the way that our God has loved us through Christ, mercy, compassion, it's going to well up so that we can go and do likewise. God came near. He became our neighbor. The Son of God took on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us to live and die in our place. Save us from our sins. Save us from hell. He neighbored us, not just by risking his life like the good Samaritan, but by laying down his life. And when we see that, when we receive that, we will have power to go and do likewise. So now that we have been neighbored, so just think about it, just to make it a little bit more practical, if, if he's completely secured our eternal future, we can, we're enabled to risk 
if he can owns the cattle on the thousand hills and will provide for us, we can give sacrificially because he's going to take care of us. So you and I have been neighbored so that we can become loving neighbors. I love that we sung that song all to us. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. So now that we've been neighbored, we need to hear and be empowered to heed this closing exhortation of Jesus to that lawyer, to us, you go and do likewise. So action is the emphasis here in this passage. The question is not who is my neighbor, but what does it look like to be a neighbor? So we need to talk about what do we do from here? If we want to go and do likewise, how do we do it? First off, I think we need to make sure we lay down our tendency to just be minimalists, the minimalist ethic. Certainly this guy did not do that. But this is the golden rule applied. So put yourself in the womb with our little fetal neighbors. (laughs) Put yourself in the shoes of a scared teenager. Put yourself in the place of an abortion rights activist who has a seared conscience. Rather than just anger and vitriol, how about pity? Like, don't you long to see the Lord do in doctors and nurses what he did for Abby Johnson? So we pray, and we love our neighbors, and the Lord's going to direct our path sovereignly to neighbors that have deep needs right here. You see, Jesus is actually asking a rhetorical question. He's putting the ball in the lawyer's court, and so he's doing the same for us. So he's given a picture through the Samaritan, but he's basically saying, so which one was the the neighbor? You go and do likewise. Pay attention to someone who's actually living it out and go and do likewise. So we need to get our eyes on people who are doing this. So Rachel's one of them, and you can learn from her. She can give you ideas, practical things. So the unwanted unborn are our neighbors. Women with unwanted pregnancies are our neighbors. Pro-choice neighbors are our neighbors to love. Abortion doctors are our neighbors. Children in the foster system and up for adoption are our neighbors. So what should we do? I'm going to just tick through some things here, and we'll we'll sing Micah 6.8 to close, and then we'll be done. First off, I don't know what you should do. (laughs) Okay? Ask the Lord. So don't be passive. Ask the Lord what you should do. We can't just be pro-life on paper. We can't all do everything, but each of us should do something. So go ask the Lord what you should do. Go and do likewise. Two, some of us might need to repent, maybe all of us, of our indifference. Maybe there's guilt, maybe that we've never dealt with or confessed or owned up. There is... There is forgiveness and cleansing for any sin. If you're complicit, if you're guilty, like there is forgiveness and cleansing and freedom and life through Jesus. Pray. Rachel mentioned it. I mean, how many abortion clinics in Newcastle County? I think three. Maybe we have not because we 
We've asked not. Why don't we pray that they'd shut down? I know there are people praying in this, this church that that rate that's crazy, you know, at least per person, you know, per capita in Delaware, that it would diminish, and it actually has. But there's a long way to go. Do your prayers reflect your convictions? Get equipped. That's certainly, like if, if one of those conversations happens at work and you're not ready, you're not going to say anything. You sound like an idiot. So getting equipped. Volunteer. Rachel mentioned that. Be an advocate. I love this story. Rachel's already talked about giving, adoption and foster care. You know, there's, let me just close with this kind of community impact thing. It was in the uh, Door of Hope's uh, annual report. I love this. There I was at the school health center waiting to deliver my son's EpiPen. While I waited, I glanced at the available literature. There was plenty of information about birth control, emergency contraception, pregnancy testing, STD testing, and HIV testing. Business cards from a local health agency advertised counseling on any of these topics for students ages 12 to 20. Obviously missing information about abstinence and pregnancy care. I found this fairly distressing and mentioned something to the school nurse. Since you have brochures about emergency contraception and birth control, would you be interested in pamphlets about resources for keeping a pregnancy? Absolutely, she answered. I left the school, drove directly across town to a door of hope, and returned to the health center with a stack of pregnancy care literature, relationship abstinence information, and other door of hope brochures. This time, I met another nurse who readily accepted the literature. I have an ADOH business card on my desk, she said, but I'm very happy to have information like this in the waiting room so the kids can see their options. We chatted a bit, and then she said quietly, a student who's currently using a Door of Hope services is eating lunch in my office. Let me see if she'd like to meet you. <laughs> it was an unforgettable meeting. I held back my tears as she told me her story, how this nurse connected her to a Door of Hope, how she made a choice for life and found the courage to tell her parents, and how a Door of Hope is helping her prepare for her baby's birth. I have the support I need, she said. Then she showed me an ultrasound picture of her baby. What a beautiful picture. And actually... The entire morning was a beautiful picture of a community working together for life. Who knows that the Lord isn't going to put something like that in your path this week or next month or whatever. So let me close with this quote from a lady named Frederica Matthews Green. Maybe the musicians can come on up. We're going to sing Micah 6-8. So I'll read this quote, and then we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. The pro-life cause is perennially unpopular, and pro-lifers get used to being misrepresented and wrongly accused. There are only a limited number of people who are going to be brave enough to stand up on the side of an unpopular cause. But sometimes a cause is so urgent, is so dramatically clear that it's worth it. What cause could be more outrageous than violence, fatal violence, against the most helpless members of our human community? If that doesn't move us, how hard are our hearts? If that doesn't move us, what will ever move us? In time, it's going to be impossible to deny that abortion is violence against children. Future generations, as they look back, are not necessarily going to go easy on ours. Our bland acceptance of abortion is not going to look like an understandable goof. In fact, the kind of hatred that people now level at Nazis and slave owners may well fall upon our era. Future generations can accurately say, it's not like they didn't know. They can say, after all, they had sonograms. They may consider this bloodshed to be a form of genocide. They might judge our generation to be monsters. One day, the tide is going to turn. With that Supreme Court decision 45 years ago, one of the sides in the abortion debate won the day. But sooner or later, that day will end. 
No generation can rule from the grave. The time is coming when a younger generation will sit in judgment of ours, and they are not obligated to be kind. So he has told you and me, oh, Bethel, brothers and sisters, what is good? And what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God?